Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the first conferences I attended as a new clergy person was probably the epitome of what you might imagine a contemporary Christian pastor's leadership development opportunity to be. It was held at one of those mega churches in Houston with a huge brand new campus with both the dazzling traditional style sanctuary and the hip, edgy, industrial looking amphitheater sized modern worship space. Being that this was my first professional conference outside of an academic setting, I marveled at the speakers taking up all that brand new space in the digitally controlled spotlight, using their PowerPoint slides with such dexterity and grace, conveying both experience and passion, knowledge and empathy for a solid hour with no notes. I remember turning to one of my colleagues, remarking at the gifts they must have been given in birth for that kind of performance, to which he responded, Darren, they've probably given that speech at least 30 times by now. (laughs) Oh, okay. I feel compelled to tell you that this is not the sermon I have rehearsed 30 times over already. I do have that sermon. It's gotten some good mileage lately. It's the one that cleverly weaves together enough about me and the work I do to make you feel connected to what's happening at the CalPAC conference office, but also leans enough on the scripture and the gospel message to make you feel like you weren't just listening to a committee report. It's a fine line I walk, I know. But one of the things I love most about the homiletic art, or the sermonic genre, and in which area I know you all at Riviera have been spoiled for quite a long time, is that this piece of writing or speech exists in a particular context, both in space and time, never to be experienced the same way again. So if you'll forgive me for denying you the stump speech this morning, it feels like this particular moment calls for exactly what we have come here for, 
the presence and wisdom of God to be made known and manifest in us for such a time as this. Let us pray. Loving God, we gather again at this place, this sacred space, where we trust we will encounter your presence. We pray that you would open our ears and our minds and our hearts to receive again your word this day, that it might live newly and freshly in us, that it might inspire us again to follow where you lead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word that we've turned to this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. I love the way Luke tells the Gospel story because it takes on good flesh. Mark tends to leave us hanging without a lot of details and in too much of a hurry with all of his immediately's. And Matthew is pretty concerned about connecting everything Jesus does or doesn't do to uh, some Jewish prophecy or law. Fine. And John writes beautifully, the most beautifully but it can get a little transcendent sometimes and hard to bring back down to the place where we live. Luke, though, helps things get personal. We see the very humanity in Jesus and all he encounters. We live closely alongside the characters as they listen and work and eat, all the things we know intimately in our own lives. Unlike any other gospel writer, Luke takes his time with this particular part of the story, the call of the first disciples. He paints the picture of the crowds gathered on the lakeshore, the fishermen exhausted from a night's work, finishing up the mending and cleaning of their nets before finally resting and returning the next day. And Jesus sees it all. He moves down to the shoreline and steps into the boat belonging to Simon, later to be known as Peter, choosing him to be his potentially reluctant host for this encounter and asks him to push out onto the lake. We might safely assume that at this point, Jesus had already become somewhat of a phenomenon in that region, that this wouldn't have been the first time a crowd was gathered around him or he was making a spectacle somewhere in town. If he had recognized him, if he had recognized Jesus, Simon might have anticipated that this would be no ordinary spin around the harbor. Despite his own agenda, interrupting whatever he might have planned for that day, Simon set out with Jesus onto the lake. I like to imagine that Jesus' teaching was more like a Garrison Keillor story or a Krista Tippett podcast than a conference staff person's report or, frankly, any run-of-the-mill sermon— that like with our favorite authors or speakers or comedians, people anchored into Jesus' every word, captivated and compelled by his message, which was risky and radical, yet honest and convicting. And Simon Peter had the best seat in the house on this day. He got to share in this intimate space with this mysterious teacher, sitting at his feet, sharing his breath and energy and hope. So much so that when Jesus told him to push farther out over the deep water to let his nets down, Simon Peter didn't resist thinking, A, um, Jesus, fishing during the daytime is not all that productive. Or B, do you even know how tired I am right now? Despite having worked all night and having caught nothing, he says, Master, if you say so, I will let down the nets. The part that Luke leaves out of uh, the, t- the part that Luke leaves out is the time that it took to actually push the boat out back over the deep water. 
Our version jumps right ahead to the punchline, but I imagine there was some good time in there for second-guessing, maybe a little cursing, a good deal of sweating and muscle fatigue. Perhaps there was also some self-consciousness in Simon Peter as the crowd watched this sudden, unexpected unmooring. It's almost hard to remember that the crowd is there, in fact, as we watch the stories of Jesus unfold. In almost every gospel story, the crowd is there, the hungry crowd, the eager crowd, the condemning crowd. We might forget that people, many people, would have been watching to see who let Jesus into their boat, who would lend their support to the one who criticized the religious fundamentalists and broke social expectations to speak prophetically about God's will and, God forbid, politics. Who themselves would break with tradition or family or political or national affiliation to stand with Jesus, to echo his message, to live as he taught. Later in the story, when Jesus is well into his ministry, plenty of other people come out of the crowds, throwing off social conventions of pride, of privilege, or status to receive Jesus' blessing or to share with him in fellowship around the table, or even to travel with him as the first evangelists. But not everyone. This is one way we know that Jesus' message was powerful because of the sacrifice people of great privilege and of great vulnerability were willing to make of both their social standing or even physical safety to participate in his work and teaching. Though clearly it wasn't all-consuming. It wasn't hypnotically convincing or universally approved. Not everyone got swept up in the good news of God's unbounded invitation or unending generosity or unyielding mercy or unmerited grace. The cynics and fundamentalists and probably even the pragmatists would have watched with skepticism from the sidelines as individually, one by one, disciples and believers were made. They would have stood on the shore wondering what in the world that fisherman was doing, putting his net out again after all that work had yielded no result the night before. We who frequent these pews, these sanctuaries and places of worship, also spend a lot of time huddled together in our own kind of crowd. Perhaps we are hungry or eager or sometimes even condemning. Maybe sometimes we press in closer together around the altar, yearning for that good news of invitation, generosity, mercy, and grace. Sometimes yearning for the actual food that is God's sustaining presence and strength. We know enough to follow Jesus because his teaching is life-giving, his word a lamp unto our feet. We know enough to crowd around because something miraculous might take place. Someone oppressive might get taken down a peg or two. Someone might be healed, maybe even raised from the dead. Someone might come away with more fish than their boat can hold. It could even be us. But maybe sometimes we prefer a place a little farther back from the action. No offense to the back row, I like it back there too. Maybe sometimes we want only the familiarity and safety of the crowd. When we are with the crowd, we can feel assured that we've adhered to the proper etiquette or social norms. We haven't too seriously offended anyone, or at least not anyone in our crowd. From within the crowd, we listen to and see Jesus. We receive the good news and feel comforted. But maybe we keep one, at least one foot securely on the shoreline, just in case. 
The problem with hanging out too long in the crowd is that we adopt the crowd mentality. The crowd tells us that no one person can have that big of an impact, that the way things are is the way they will continue to be or should be, that problems are too big to fix or someone would have fixed them already, or that if we wait long enough, the leader we need to guide us will show up. It also tells us that whatever direction a majority of people are moving is probably the direction we should be going, and that we shouldn't make too much noise and discontent when we disagree with the crowd, because we might be easily discarded and left to fend for ourselves. Because of this, I am fearful of the world we inhabit today. I'm afraid because we seem to be accepting of the rampant gun violence in our nation and the implicit message we send to our children that we would rather secure our freedom to bear arms than their freedom to live without fear of being shot. I am afraid because we send government officials to indefinitely orphan communities of children with no regard for how they will be cared for in the short or long term, let alone the kind of emotional scars they will forever have with their parents stripped from them with no sign of return. I am afraid when even our church turns inward against itself, using the most vulnerable and historically ostracized as the scapegoat for our embattled theological polarization. And those are just my fears this week. Perhaps you are like me and feel overwhelmed and weary, fatigued from the duration and intensity of the fighting and dehumanization, and the overriding sense of powerlessness to influence change. Jesus' very first disciple said, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. Yet if you say so, I will face the isolation and derision of the crowd and send this boat back out into the middle of this lake. Yet if you say so, I will go with you outside the safety of this crowd, trusting that you won't let my faithfulness be in vain. Yet if you say so, I will let go of what I know and open myself to a higher wisdom you have yet to reveal to me. Yet if you say so, I will lay down my life, and I will not be afraid, for you will teach me to fish for people. Friends, discipleship cannot be lived from just within the crowd at least not the crowds that are immobilized by cynicism and judgment, self-preservation, or fear. Discipleship cannot be lived from within the comforts of homogeneity or like-mindedness that allow us to stand just out of view of the action, waiting to see what God will do next. Discipleship is saying yes when God calls us from our weariness and frustration to be the potentially reluctant host for God's teaching. Discipleship is saying yes when the Spirit pulls on our heartstrings and we feel captivated by compassion and mercy or convicted by some injustice or brokenness in need of transformation. Discipleship is second-guessing, maybe even cursing, sweating and flexing our muscles in pursuit of the task God has put before us, even while feeling the weight of the judgment of the crowd upon us. And discipleship is raising up the abundance and goodness that Jesus will bring to fruition through us as we gather those around us to share in the effort. This is no stump sermon because we are not in a season when we can sit by and listen to the same messages again and again. 
We are not here to be assured of our safety or be awed and entertained. We are here to look upon the world as God does and to listen for Christ's voice as he calls us to set down what we know and to follow him. This is not a season in which we can afford to back down from this mandate. There is too much at stake. God is with us and guiding us, but God has not promised to do it without us. God created us for this purpose, and God lives in and through us to bring about the kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. This is our responsibility. We are the ones who are called out from the crowd and set apart for this mission of ushering in the reign of peace and justice and mercy. We don't have to do it alone, thanks be to God, for Jesus calls each of us. But we have to begin with the courage to say yes, the willingness to follow, and the faith that Christ as our guide on this path leads us to our greatest hope. May it be so. Amen.